the leaders of the organizations that I work with, I want them to ask the same questions. How do I break out of the boundaries and, and create organizations that are truly um, accelerate the human condition as well as produce products that are extraordinary? Welcome to the Emotional Coach Podcast with me, Andrea Splendori. And this week, my guest is Dr. Keith Merrill. Keith is the founder and managing partner of Leadership Pathways, an organizational consulting and leadership development firm. In this podcast, we discuss his latest book, The Art of Transformational Coaching, writing, coaching, leadership, and so much more. Please subscribe, share, and review. It's the only way podcasts like this have a chance to survive. For more information and more episodes, please visit andreasplendori.com. The title tune is Paralyzed by Nevada. Straight into the book, just to make it a, as, as human as possible, because that's really what we're at. We're just humans, isn't it? Yeah, I think I can uh, bring my human to the conversation. Okay, brilliant. So, look, Dr. Keith Merrim, thanks a million for uh, joining me on the, on the, on the show. And um, as we were just talking before, the microphone um, was switched on. It's just uh, I don't know a huge amount about you, but um, so I guess we start from there. Tell me a little bit about you, Keith, if you may. Always such a challenging question uh, in in an open field. Uh, so, um, yeah, I. I think I would describe myself as a difference thinker. You know, I, you can divide the world into two, two groups of people. Um, we'll dispense from the joke, those who divide the world into two people and those who don't. But um, uh, those who are sameness thinkers and those who are difference thinkers. And, you know, sameness thinkers like to go along with the crowd and and um, tend to conform to society's norms and relish in them and no, no judgment implied at all. But I'm, I've always been a difference thinker, fascinated by people uh, who think outside the box. And, and that certainly describes my, my life, my career. Uh, uh, the brief th- thumbnail sketch is a doctorate from Harvard University uh, in organizational development. Um, written six books on the subjects of leadership and organizational life. Uh, but that, you know, uh, I'm an organizational consultant, executive coach. But that doesn't tell the story of my life. You know, the story of my life would, would be much more about uh, breaking out of the, the boundaries of, of, of normal thinking to explore uh, arenas that uh, others uh, rarely go. That's that's really interesting. The difference thinking. When, I mean, growing up, was that already there? Thinking outside the box, and if so, how did it manifest? I mean, sometimes being the difference thinker at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen might not necessarily go along with the crowd. Oh. What was it like? <laughs> it's it can be lonely, except you. I started to surround myself with other people with similar minds, but. Um, you know, you can picture, well, when I was uh, in high school, I started a bridge club and, you know, bridge club bridges for older people typically. And, and yet I loved bridge. I learned it when I was uh, 10 years old. And um, uh, when I was 16, this was in the early seventies, the uh, women's uh, movement was was quite active, the feminist movement, and and I started a men's group. You know, with with not with men, but with high school boys, and um, I think that I was inspired very much by my parents. My my father was a uh, out of the box thinker in in the financial world. Uh, my mother married a, her second husband was a guy who was one of the pioneers in the field of organization development. Literally, you know, a man who helped bring forth executive coaching and organizational effectiveness to the world. And um, 
so I grew up in a family in a milieu that uh, I think inspired inspired me and and others around us to to think differently. It's really interesting, and um, I like that uh, the outside of the box. It's uh, it's quite hard to define. It's sometimes what it, what is the box, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, this does relate to my book, um, which really focuses on the nature of paradigms and how they shape us. And if you're going to be a coach, you're, you're, you're in the business of shifting people's paradigms. And so um, I'm fascinated by that particular way of understanding the world. We, we as human beings, and tend to be sameness thinkers, when a, when a particular view is proffered in the world, uh, a view about medicine, for example, and that's pretty relevant in today's day and age, given COVID, but you know, the, the theory or model for, for medicine 500 or 600 years ago is that, uh, uh, or maybe a thousand years ago, is that sickness is caused by, by demons um, or by a poor relationship to spirit. And so the, the original doctors were spiritual healers uh, in many, many different cultures. And, and then uh, somebody had the idea, well, the real reason why people get sick is bad blood. So we should just suck the blood out of people and that'll heal them, um, which I imagine one out of every 10,000 times might work. And the rest of the time, it's the body's healing itself, but the doctor believes it's the blood. Um, you know, and then germ theory came along. And, you know, so these are shifts in paradigms. And, and what's fascinating to me about the whole nature of paradigms is that, that when a group of people, a, a group of scientists or a group of anybody forms in their mind that this is truth and, and the right way of seeing the world, it gets kind of solidified. And so people adopt that view and that view does does have some credence. And when you hold the view, the paradigm, you see the world through that lens, through that paradigm, and the world shows up consistent with the paradigm and it reinforces it. I'm speaking abstractly now, we can speak very concretely about it, um, but I'm fascinated by that. And so if you're a difference thinker, you're looking at the paradigm and going, wait a sec, I'm not so sure. And uh, I wonder about that. And the very act of wondering about one's own paradigm is what is the beginning point of breaking free of it. But most people, they don't wonder about their paradigm. It just is. It just is the way I see the world. It is the way the world is. So why question it? And I've always been somebody who goes, well, let's question it. And I think that's part of my family and upbringing and just something that gives me you know, juice in the world and interest in the world. As I was saying, I haven't read the book yet, but I read the the blurb, and it is uh, it does sound fascinating. I'm uh, relatively new to coaching compared to your a number of years in the coaching world, uh, a, a, a couple of decades or more. And uh, but one thing, let's get into the details actually of the book because this probably is a good segue. You know, you're talking about the assumptions about coaching, the way the way coaching has evolved in the last 20 years and then has, has become a lot more um, spread out in the community. And and, oh, yeah. and, and and obviously, the one thing that fascinated me about that, the, the bit I read, is that you talk about how the clients now expecting something different, something more, something more refined. And tell me a little bit more about that, that concept and how the book came about. Well, I think, I think some of that expectation is a natural arc of any industry uh, where when somebody offers uh, a service or product in any industry over time, competition comes in. If the product is successful, let's say you built the first car and it, people travel from point A to point P in the car. Uh, and they enjoy it and they like it and it benefits their life. And, and so others start to tinker around saying, well, let me see if I can build that car better. And, and indeed they do over time. And that's the beauty of competition. Competition at its best 
is it, it, it accelerates the, the ability of the, who's ever producing or offering a service to do it better and better. And coaching industry is no different. Um, when I started coaching 35, 36 years ago, we didn't call it coaching. I, I, I think we were just advisors. And, and coaching was very much more about advice. Oh, you know something really good? Well, why don't you teach me or help me learn it? So the clients were somebody who wanted advice from the, from the coach. But advice giving is one form of help. Uh, you, you say, hey, I want to lose some weight. And how, Keith, I understand you're a weight expert. How, how do you do it? And I, I say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself, and then I'll tell you what I suggest. And that was the typical form or typical paradigm of coaching, in a sense, uh, for a long time, even though we didn't call it coaches. And the idea of helping somebody learn and grow and deepen and transform is a very uh, appealing thing for a lot of people. A lot of people just want to help other people. You know, if, if somebody says, hey, I got a problem and, you're, and I'm in a group of people and I say, I got a problem, there's a lot of people who would be happy to help either because they just want to help or, or because they, their ego is, believes they know better and, and they get the pleasure of, of telling me how smart they are. But, but the, the desire to help, the impulse to help has been around since human beings were, were here on the earth and maybe even other animals to that, for that matter. And, um, and so uh, I was just helping leaders you know, I was con consulting to organizations, helping the organizations grow and develop. And in order for the, an organization to grow and develop, I think the, the, the strongest fulcrum point for that development is the leadership of the organization. So I started coaching leaders without calling it that and, and developing my trade. And, and then I got really interested in the concept of transformation. I took guests 30 some odd years ago, LifeSpring, these were personal transformational experiences. Uh, it's now Landmark, I believe. Uh, Estes transmogrified into Landmark. And, and, and I started to couple my ideas about transformation with my advice and, and decided, well, I wasn't so much interest, interested in giving advice. Advice is kind of cheap. I was really interested in helping people transform and helping organizations transform. And that, that gave rise to a whole new way of understanding coaching and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. The whole coaching industry has moved from advice giving to inquiry. You know, so instead of let me tell you what you should do, I'll ask questions to help you discover what, what you, you, you might do for yourself. And that's where the coaching industry is right now. It's really primarily inquiry based, which is a beautiful thing. So instead of advice, I believe that you have the natural ability to find in yourself the answer. And so I'll ask questions that are designed to get to, the, get to your answer. That's a beautiful thing, but it's got a problem embedded in it. And the problem embedded in it is that if I coach you and ask questions and you answer those questions, you're answering them within your paradigm. And you may find the solution that's best for you within the paradigm, but what if a far more powerful solution exists outside of your paradigm? then all of my inquiry, unless it's designed to help you shift your paradigm, all my inquiry will simply reinforce your current paradigm and it may be limited. So the idea of transformational coaching is really to deepen the inquiry such that an, a breakthrough can occur in a person's paradigm. I'll stop there. I obviously- No, no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating because that's what I was gonna ask you because it, as you say, the inquiry-based um, coaching, which is, 90% of what's going on, if not 99% of what's going on when somebody like myself called himself a coach. Um, but the, you, you call it a powerful agent for change. So you're, you're talking about, is it, is it morphing between uh, coaching and advisor again in, in a different way? Or, or explain to me that powerful agent for change for others. That's, the, that's what you say, you know, uh, the transformational, or am yeah. I getting it wrong? No, I'm not sure, but I'll refer, refer in and around the question anyway. Um, you know, I could, let's say you come to me and you, you say, uh, 
Keith, I, I feel like I'm not achieving in my career. I've got places to go and I feel stuck in my career. Um, my, uh, most coaches, they would maybe ask a few questions and, and go, aha, I know why you're stuck. You're stuck because you have fear of failure. And so I'm going to uh, show you some strategies that'll help you get past your fear and we'll employ some of those strategies. And that's not a bad thought process. I think that in some sense that could do the trick and you might find uh, and discover ways in which uh, your fears have been running you and you might find strategies to, to bypass it. Um, but interestingly, a lot of the uh, uh, interaction between coach and client is very dependent upon the coach's brilliance in that scenario and the coach's ability to offer strategies to bypass or break through the, the, uh, the fears. And uh, uh, while I have no problem with that, and most coaches would, would, would employ that kind of strategy, um, I'm interested in an, in, an, in an enduring effect. So I'd be curious about how those fears formed in the first place. I'd be curious about how those fears served the person um, and have served them. I'd be curious about how the strategies that they've employed have benefited the person at one level within that person's psyche. And I'd be interested in helping that person learn about themselves and navigate their own inner world such that when they reach a breakthrough and ready to um, uh, identify uh, alternative strategies, they're, they're cultivated not by my brilliance as a coach, but by the really the brilliance of the exploration itself that produces an outcome that the client can own for themselves as their own discovery. And I'm an agent of that. I'm, I'm a facilitator of that exploration. And I, I have the belief that if I do that well, and the client joins me in the exploration in a powerful way, then the profound learning for the client isn't just, hey, I know how to bypass my fear. The profound learning is I just shifted my whole way of being. That's what the nature of transformation is. So it's not transformed just this one element in my life, but I am now more spacious. I'm more expansive. I'm more fluid. I'm more capable. All of those things got produced from the experience of the exploration that we're in. And that's to me what I'm interested in. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, but being powerful, it just a question came to mind while you were describing it. And I can see, I can see the journey. I can see the, if I'm your client, wanting to go on that journey, wanting to really come along on, on a journey with you as, as my agent for change. But yes. from your point of view as a coach, is that more... Um, is that harder to do? Is it more involved? Is it more emotionally oh, involved? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's hard. Well, it's, it's certainly more complex. And in that sense, it's by definition harder. Uh, but that's what compels me. You know, that's what fascinates me. The, the, uh, and I don't mean to cheapen coaching at all. I mean, there are tons of coaches out there in the world doing really wonderful things. And even tons of people giving good advice. But I've, I've been fascinated by the nature of advice and what compels us to give it. And almost always, if I get, you know, you say, hey, help me with my finances. I'm not sure how to uh, invest. You know, one, one, one thing I could do very quickly is say, well, I suggest you diversify your portfolio. And, and here's some few places that I've had found that work for me in terms of my investment. But the reason why I found those investments and that strategy to work is because they work for me. And what a 
profound arrogance on my part to believe that that which works for me would fit for you. So by definition, advice, especially if it's quick and to the point, is almost always driven by the paradigm of the deliverer of the advice without any understanding of the needs of the person who's receiving it. And so it's just got a, a, a certain arrogance in it, one that I happen to enjoy from time to time. <laughs> I, I write a whole book that is my advice to the coaching industry. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, my ego gets satisfied by saying, I have something better that I want to offer you the world or you the client. And it's very satisfying when the client says, thank you. That's wonderful. And so advice given, advice taken, um, help achieved, but rarely does advice actually stick. And so it satisfies the giver often far more than the receiver. And, and, and that's fascinating to me. Why would we do that? Well, I think that has to do with the nature of human beings and ego and, and how we gain enjoyment of being smarter and better than other people. Um, but does it truly produce a powerful impact in the client and, and I would say sometimes, just like sucking blood every now and then does work. Um, I'm being unfair to, to advice givers now. But, um, <laughs> That's a good analogy. Though. <laughs> it does, it's, a, it's an unfair but really good analogy. So it does work. But, you know, does it truly produce a transformation? And, you know, I'll, I'll say one more thing, and I'm sure other questions come for you, but... Um, you know, many people don't come to me for transformation. They come to me for help, advice, or to fix them in some way. I, I, I struggle with this. I wanna, I'm, 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 I'm not achieving my career in the way I want, or I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I have difficulty speaking in public, or, or uh, I'm a little too controlling, and I just got feedback from my boss and people around me that I'm overbearing, and I want to be less overbearing. They don't come for transformation. They come for help. And part of the interesting journey for me from that moment is to shift the conversation from help in the traditional way to, well, what if I could offer a process that would produce a transformation? Would you be interested? And almost always the answer is, heck yeah. I am interested. And, and, and so the journey shifts from help to something far more profound pretty quickly in, in my world. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because uh, I, I, I travel to America quite a lot, but not to the extent to be arrogant enough to, un to understand it as a culture. I only know what I know from visiting. So a lot of my cultural understanding of, of America comes from the movies, like everybody else oh, from course. Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> But it, it, it's quite fascinating that went from uh, the Woody Allen, you know, everybody had a, as a string or a, a, a psychotherapist. Now everybody seemed to have a coach. And, yeah, yeah, that's and, right. But it's that shift, which I'm, I don't know when and how it happened or if it happened uh, overnight or whatever, but is that when you're talking about help, I mean, is there still a lot of people that are looking for that silver bullet? They're looking for the, the pill. You know, I want this, to, I want to change. What you're talking about, Keith, is wonderful, but that sounds like a lot of work and, and I still don't trust myself. I want, give me something, give me the advice. You, tell yeah. me what to do. We, we, we live in a Twitter world, don't we? And in the Twitter world, we want the short soundbite and the rapid source of success. You know, it, what that means is to me that there are a lot of coaches that offer that and a lot of people who want that. And that's, that's perfectly fine. I, I'm, uh, I wouldn't begrudge anybody from wanting it or offering it. And so my particular quality of coaching is not for everybody. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm happy to, to live beyond the Twitter world and, and look for a deeper exploration. And uh, maybe 10% of the population would be interested in it, but that's the 10% that I want to work with. And my personal belief is that the paradigms that shape the world are, uh, well, I would say it this way. I think there's a race between the paradigms that are 
are are well designed to produce a transformation that may they may cause us to have a breakthrough in, in humanity and those possibilities exist and then there are paradigms that are simply accelerating us to our destruction as a species and as a planet and there's a battle a race in a sense and i want to be on the side of the first and in order to because so many forces are leading us i think to to our ultimate destruction um and i'm not talking about strange spiritual forces i'm talking about choices that we human beings make um out of our own uh, uh hubris and and so uh i want i want the world to question those paradigms i want our leaders to wonder why is the why is it i'll just give you a little example of what i wonder about i, I it struck me when obama was uh um uh and and mccain uh, were were vying to become president of the united states and they had very different views about what's right or wrong and what we should or shouldn't do you know democrat versus republican is the primary example but but interestingly both of them made their platform about preserving the uh the american dream and preserving the things that we have held um as sacred and beautiful in 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 america like progress technological social economic progress like that's a good thing or um being better and better able to be masters of our of 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 the planet and an engineer life well what if trying to engineer the planet will just accelerate our destruction what if progress economic social political progress eventually has its limits in the way in which it's currently defined what if we there are resources that are not renewable and um and we keep tapping into that like oil isn't there a limit aren't we going to run out and and those questions are rarely asked when we talk about the value of progress so to me i want to be on the side of ones that go i'm not so sure uh is is the progress as as we define it in our culture healthy is it wise the same thing in organizations the same thing for leaders of businesses that i that i i mean i'm the planet is not my client so i'm i'm not sure i i have access to all the leaders of the planet but the leaders of the organizations that i work with i want them to ask the same questions how do i break out of the boundaries and and create organizations that are truly um accelerate the human condition as well as produce products that are extraordinary can we couple those two instead of just producing great stuff and to heck with human beings or or let's let's create a great wonderful organization but we're not very effective in in the world you know i, I want to marry the two and and the coaching that i do is designed for that i don't even know what your question was i think i that's absolutely absolutely fine my, and you're talking to a person that writes books so I, i'll write it you know this is what i do i'm sorry that's absolutely yeah. fine no because that brings me to a question i have for you what you were saying about um the shift in paradigm and and how you know effectively what you're saying well, what our beliefs whatever those beliefs are whether they're there are constitutional beliefs or whatever the, the environment has changed and changes all the time what you're talking about is if i hear correctly is you know we need to adapt all the time just you know question that environment and and question those beliefs versus the environment that as is moving do you think that the last year with this pandemic and i know in california you're probably just slightly ahead of the rest of us we're still locked down and all that but do you think that has accelerated that kind of thinking for more people than you know that idea of okay hold on maybe we need to question more here maybe maybe the medicine as we knew it is not as good maybe maybe the government as we know is not what we want do you think there's it does it just be more questions around oh my yeah, we're getting uh well i i certainly invited uh, open the door for this so might as well walk through it um <laughs> yeah uh 
Well, I think there's some beautiful things that are coming out of the coronavirus. For one, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I hardly read in the paper much about wars going on. And so I think there are fewer wars. It's almost like the warriors, the fighters said, well, we better not fight too much right now. I don't want to get COVID, so I'll just stay home. And, and, uh, and so I don't think this is going to bring lasting peace, but it's an interesting um, uh, moment in time. And um, I think that the people are traveling less and not going to the office to work. Well, they find out that they can work from home and that may change the whole nature of cities and the whole value of cities. There's going to be a lot of buildings that you don't need to go to in order to do your work. Factory, yes. Uh, uh, certain ser- services that require human beings um, like the barbershop, of course, you, you'll go there um, and there'll be places to work. But we're finding that a lot of business and life can be transacted from home. So why do I need a second building when my office could be right here? So those are the kinds of things that I think COVID is producing. And, and I think that's a beautiful adaptation that might emerge from this, question the way in which we do business. Uh, uh, the, the, so many things are delivered to our homes now, that might be a, the norm. And I don't see why not which will free up a lot of travel on, on the highways, which will reduce pollution, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so there's some wonderful things that come from it. But what scares me is I think the vaccine vaccine's going to work. I think there's evidence that we will get through this particular, this particular um, uh, virus. And it will come out of it, but to what effect? And is this now our strategy for dealing with viruses? We will clamp everybody down. They will stay in their homes. We will, uh, uh, and then we will, we will search and find rapidly. Maybe it'll take only six months this time. The, the vaccination and then vaccinate everybody. We are not strengthening us as human beings through this strategy. We're basically saying your physical, your body is not capable of fighting off the virus as it used to be. And our bodies fight off colds just fine. It takes a little while, but we fight it off. Our bodies fight off flu. Our bodies fight off the billions of viruses that exist all around us. But now we're saying, let's not strengthen the body. Let's produce something outside the body, stick it into the body, and rapidly increase your immune system to that particular virus, but we're not strengthening the body, we're just strengthening the immune system to that virus. I don't think this is a sustainable strategy for health. I think it's a dangerous strategy that simply weakens the body, much like putting an antibiotic in the body. It fights the the germ, but it doesn't strengthen my ability my body's natural ability to fight, fight germs, you know, bad germs, bad bacteria. So I'm concerned personally of the effect of this on our planet. And as the next variant that comes out, am I back in with my, you know, my mask and in my house? Is this life as we know it? I, I don't think it's sustainable. And I actually don't think staying in my home strengthens me. No. It weakens me. Absolutely. Uh, now I wanted to know because from a from a an out of the box thinker, I just was I was curious to hear your your view on it. And you you probably you don't have the answer, obviously, like none of us do. But it's interesting to hear what what we are thinking. Let me bring you back to the book because um, yeah. so the um, this is one of six books you've written, uh, if I'm correct. And this is the latest one, came out uh, last June, uh, June 2020. Tell me about the writing process, if you could. And like you already told me, uh, one of the reasons why you write is to feed your ego, <laughs> like every writer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I sort of said that, didn't I? <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. We all do. We all, like, we all have an uh, ego. 
<laughs> we have to feed ego. But you know, there's more to that, obviously. Uh, there's tell me, uh, well, both, uh, why you write the books and uh, and the process? Because you know, it's not easy. I'm in the process. I have two books on the go. I haven't written like I'm halfway through both of them, and and eventually I'll get them out. But uh, it's it's discipline. It's it's getting the especially at the moment. Exactly what you just said. You staying at home. Not only you're not going to fight the virus, but you can't feed your your the information flow from other humans and the noise and the smells and everything that we need to inform our narrative, whatever that narrative is. Tell me a bit about your your process, please. Oh my! Uh, um, well, the the I I I. I I was a little surprised when I became a book writer. Um, but when I reflect at the time, I was a little surprised. The first book, it just took a lot of courage to believe that I had something worthy of saying. And I was in my late twenties and uh, or, no, I was in my early thirties and I hadn't written a book up until then, but I was a prolific writer as a graduate student, you know, the teacher would say, write a term paper and typically expected 10 to 12 pages. And, and mine were 50 pages or 75 pages. And um, probably uh, my teachers appreciated it and hated me because they had to read the darn thing. And if you're, if you're, if you teach, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I just didn't, I didn't have any boundaries on, on myself. And when, when I get interested in a topic, um, I don't have writer's block about it. I get fascinated by it. I, I get curious. And a lot of it is just my own learning or my own deepening. For example, my second, well, my first book was called Riding the Wave. It was about large-scale change. And I was working with a lot of executives at the time, helping them uh, grow and develop their organization. And I decided, boy, I wonder if I can give them a manual that says, here's a way of thinking about organizational change and growth. And so I started to write a manual for my clients and then the manual turned into a book. And my second book, Consulting Mastery, was me trying to articulate, I think I approach consulting a little differently than the average bear. Not that bears do much consulting, but you know, I think I approach it a little differently and what is my approach? How would I describe it to myself? How would I define it to my clients? And what is it that's unique, different? And, and I also had the realization I was seeking mastery as a consultant. And so how do I develop my own mastery as a consultant? And that turned into the book, Consulting Mastery. So each book, each successive book is just a, a deep question that I've got in my mind. Um, uh, that I want to explore. And I explore it within myself. I do a little bit of research about what's out there. Um, but mostly this is my effort to share what I think and believe about a particular topic. And, and it flows very easily. I know lots of book writers like yourself or uh, aspiring book writers want, want to know, how do I make this easier? Because sometimes this is darn hard and sometimes I'm not sure what to do or what to say or how to structure it because I want to structure it in just the right way for, for the book readers so that they'll want to read it. Those thoughts about wanting it to be good and wanting it to be effective, get in your brain and get in the way of you just writing. So my process is uh, to just let it flow. I usually have a structure in mind. I usually have a fundamental message in mind. I'll have a thin outline. Um, and then uh, that outline describes a particular arc of a story or a narrative in the book. And then I start with the beginning and, and I start to write and I let it flow without concern, whether it's readable, whether the words are right, whether it's done well, no concern of that at all. It's me wanting to shape and express my thoughts. And so the first draft can happen in two or three or four weeks. Yes. About ten pages a day, in five day in five five days, that's fifty pages, yes. and it just pours out of me and pours out of me, <clears throat> and then I got something, 
that's got a little bit of a structure um, that's got shape and form and a message and the message is in me and it comes out of me just almost like I'm channeling it, but I don't believe in channeling. So it's not quite like I'm channeling it. It's coming from me and it's coming from all that has come before me that I've studied and learned. And then the second draft is a little tougher. Now I start caring about it, making sense to other people <laughs> and uh, care about whether, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how do you describe a storyline in a way that's compelling and, and uh, uh, makes sense to the most people? And, and that, that's, I'm, care, I'm more carefully, painstakingly ripping out a lot, adding a lot, um, re, rejiggering it some. And then the third draft is microscopic. Is this sentence the correct sentence? This is too long. This paragraph is repetitive. At that point, I give it to an editor. <laughs> and I say, clean this darn thing up for me. I'm not a writer. I'm never set out to be a writer. I'm just a thinker. And you're a writer, so you help me make it look good. Thank Brilliant. goodness there's writers out there that do that. Absolutely. They're fantastic. Um, you said something earlier on, and I just want to ask you, because you've, you've, uh, there's a couple of things. Obviously, writing is, is a real passion, and, and it's something, as you say, let's call it channeling. It's something you, you flow, flows through you and onto paper, and it's fantastic. And, and it, it's because it has a meaning for you, and you want to get it out there for people to read. Your, your coaching work, again, is very much informed that wanting, and not necessarily help people, but just being being of service to others. And, 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 and then you have your organizational work, which is, it's, yes, that advisory consultancy, get a company from A to B to Z. Um, but you said something earlier on about wanting to work with companies that want to make that bold, you know, that bold change, want to be, you know, yeah. a little bit out of the box, like, a little bit like you think, and, and also the care be more than just the bottom line. That is that yeah. what we and how is that? How do you find it? Like, I mean, is it happening for you? Like, in all you, I mean, obviously, you've been doing it for years, but it, do companies buy into this idea? Look, that's not just the bottom line, look after your staff, look after your well being. And yeah, well, every company on the planet says they care that's about what I'm asking, yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. <laughs> and so, the ones that say they care does, is, doesn't differentiate them in any way. But the, the leaders that really do, that will, will um, do the right thing by employees um, and trust that in so doing, they can create a far more enduring legacy. Those are the ones I'm interested in. And there are few and far between. I mean, every, every venture capitalist I know who, you know, who invests in companies say, of course, the culture matters. And of course, people matter. Yeah, as long as it'll get me to my, to my, uh, uh, my goal, which is to uh, an exit strategy that puts money back in, in my investor's pocket and my own. You know, so um, I, you're, I'm sure you're probably familiar. I, if I say I'm sure and then I say probably, those two things don't work, don't they? I can't say I'm sure and then probably. I'm guessing... <laughs> that you appreciate and understand the power of, of attraction. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's a kind of a universal force that, that says if I put out a vibe or I put out an intention or a desire, I'll attract people who match that. Um, and I, I, I believe that that's a universal or spiritual truth, that, that that which we put out and that which we deeply yearn for, we invite, um, we attract people or who share that which we put out and so put it out strongly. So if you looked at all of my books and tried to decode them at some level, you would see that what I'm putting out in the world is I'm fascinated by mastery and I'm fascinated by breaking out of the box. I'm fascinated by what life could be. I'm, I'm more interested in that than what life is. Um, I'm more interested in what we could become and, and so with that, I put it out there in my writing. I put it out there in my speaking. I put it out there, my conversation with you. 
And, and sure enough, over the years, I've attracted clients of similar mind. I put it out boldly without hesitation, knowing that I might alienate 70 or 80% of the population. I put out my views of coaching that say this transformational coaching is about paradigms. And if you want to be a powerful coach, I want you to consider looking at coaching in this way. And uh, I track the people who go, yeah, that's interesting. I'm interested in that. And then the rest fall by the wayside. So I have no illusion that my work and my writing, my beliefs are for the, for the common population. They're not. It's for, for those that welcome this. And interestingly, the more I put it out there cleanly and clearly with conviction, the more I attract people of similar minds. And that's, that's how it works to me. That way I never have to market I never have to try to sell anything. I never have to say, hey, you ought to work with me. Well, I don't know that. But I can say, here's what I'm about. And if that appeals to you, let's talk. And so I don't sell. I'm just looking for people who match my thinking. But I got to put it out there. You know, I got to state it clearly. And I'm happy to do that. It's a very different way of thinking about selling. But I will tell you, I've never had to market or sell myself for 30 eight years because of this profound thought that it's really more about the power of attraction. Yeah, no, I like that. And it's something relatively new to me. Uh, I, I, I find out I'm, I've always been like that, but uh, I'm now applying it more and more because it's just, even just today we find it, we got a call after six months uh, discussing with, with a potential client, but it was literally discussing with a, which, talked to them six months ago and just said, look, that's what we do. And they came back and said, we want to work with you. But there was no, no. hard sell. There was literally, that's our menu. That's how I call, I call it. I call it our menu. This is our menu of choice. See if you like anything in it. Uh, and it's a nice way to go about. Keith, I want to keep you too much longer, but um, I'm always curious about um, what do you do for um, outside of work? What do you do, Tom Wine? What's your, you know, <laughs> You get up on the mountains. I unwind. <laughs> that implies I wonder. I wonder, do I ever unwind uh, for relaxation? I write books. <laughs> Fair enough. And once you leave no, the books, I, do you ever go out of the house and do something, go explore around course. your area? <laughs> of course. Well, interestingly, Bridge is a, is a, well, it's pretty intense. So I guess that's not unwinding, but I love to play Bridge. I love to you know, learn how to be better and better at it. God knows why, you know, and then you die and you were better at it. So what, but it's fascinating to me. It's a little bit like brain floss. I'm getting older and I want to keep my mind sharp. Uh, like love bike riding. I've got an electric bike and I tool around. I go to the grocery store. I grow to go to tool around town with it. I don't get in my car very often. Um, just because I, I love being out in the fresh air. Um, and even if it's cold, I'll put on a coat and get in my, on my bike. And I, I just feel more free and more out there. Uh, ski, I play tennis, I golf. Um, uh, I've, one of my greatest pleasures is a reading book that I've got, a reading club, book club that I've got going that we, we explore all and everything. And it's a lot of fun. So there's a few. There's plenty. Well, that brings me to the last question that I always ask my guests. Um, okay, we're already going to recommend The Art of Transformational Coaching because that's your book, and I haven't read it, but I will read it. But give me an idea of a book I should be reading. It doesn't matter whether it's anything to do with coaching or a novel or anything at all, a book you read or late that you recommend and why. <laughs> oh, my books will probably be pretty esoteric, the ones that I've loved. <laughs> And so, so here's an interesting thing. I can't recommend a book. It would go going back to advice because that would imply that I know you well enough that you should read X. If you want me to recommend a book to you, you've got to tell me what you're interested in. And then I might say, oh, I read about this. But I know that's not really the spirit of the question. The spirit of the question is, is there a book that's jazzing you, Keith? Exactly, yeah. Right, yeah. Well, so I'll name two of my favorite. I'll name three of my favorite. One is The Fountainhead by Anne Rand, yeah. which is a, such a wonderful 
powerful message of, of, the, of the sovereignty of a person, you know, and the beauty of a person's sovereignty. And I just think that that's certainly been a thread in my life of finding my own sovereign voice and expressing in the world and welcoming others to do the same as long as it doesn't do damage. As long as it doesn't, you know, tread on my sovereignty, you're welcome to have your own view. So it's an expression of freedom. A second uh, would be the uh, uh, fascinating book to me, and it's very, very controversial, but the uh, origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind is a, a, an extraordinary treatise in challenging our understanding of what causes consciousness. And the third book, this is one that I think surprises almost everybody, is called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Mm, and uh, what's fascinating about this book is, so Ernest Becker was a psycho, psych, psychiatrist. And he came to the realization that so much of our fears, so much of our, our cultural patterns are out of fear of death. And our denial of death and its fundamental impact on, on us as human beings. And uh, for example, he looked at uh, uh, the, the act of, of binding Chinese binding feet, Chinese women binding their feet, which was a, a tradition of the past. It was out of the belief that feet were ugly. And so he started to go on this riff about why are feet considered ugly? And what is it about ugliness that is so uncomfortable? And ugliness and, and dis, pe people who are disfigured, it somehow unconsciously, according to this author, reminds us of death, the ultimate disfigurement uh, of who we are. And so our many cultural patterns are out of denial of death. And what's really fascinating about this book is that he wrote it while he was dying and he knew he was dying. And it, so it was an exploration for himself about his own death and how he denied it and feared it and what was the implications of that on his life. And so in that sense, it's such an, an amazing, ironic, powerful treatise. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Keith Merrin, that was an absolutely <laughs> fascinating conversation. We could talk for hours. But, uh, I think we could. Yeah. And it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Emilio, for coming on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for being so inquisitive and uh, giving me the freedom to just expound, let, let my ego run. It's fun. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Keith Merrin. Please visit andreasplendori.com for more information and more episodes.